Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process. I, of course, am your host, Greg Wareham. We got a great show for you today, and we're going to do a little bit of a different format that we're going to start to integrate into our show. And we're going to answer questions that come directly from our clients, from our real estate partners, and from the community. Now, we have a whole series of questions that were asked via email that we're going to get back to everyone today with. But moving forward, we're going to start doing some live phone calls that come in, and we're going to give everyone the ability to be able to email and text out to us so we can make sure that we're addressing the questions that you have and making sure that you're more educated in the marketplace. So with that, I'm also going to introduce a very, very special guest today, Mr. Nick Pavise, the owner of The Social Rift, who's also the producer of my show. Welcome to the show, Nick. What's going on, Greg? Long time to see. I know, right? <laughs> so behind the scenes, you may have heard me mention Nick from time to time, and Nick's going to be on the show today, and he's going to help answer the questions from the clients that had emailed over to us. We thought it was the perfect format to kind of just pull it in and... Uh, it's the first time on camera. We took took over 70 episodes to get me on camera. I know, 71 episodes. That's I finally it. got you on camera. <laughs> you know what? And don't be confused or be surprised. Nick's not afraid of the camera at all. <laughs> not at all. We're good. It's going to be a good one. Uh, it's going to be great. So you know what? We're going to get right into it. And the first question I'm going to start with that I had written down, and then Nick's going to ask some different questions. I was asked questions about appraisals and what I'm seeing in the marketplace with values of homes coming in. Now... The market's changing a little bit, and we had a really booming market last year and the year prior where there were so many houses selling that when an appraisal was done on a property, there were a ton of comparable sales to compare that home to. What we've seen over the course of the past six months is a lot less houses are selling. So now if you have a property that goes under contract for someone to purchase and we order an appraisal on it, there's less of a pool of comparable sales for the appraiser to pull from. Now, that can work to our disadvantage longer term because if we have an appreciating market, but we don't have comparable sales that are showing that appreciating market yet, it could create some appraisal issues relative to the purchase price of the property. So just kind of give you an idea as to some of the things that can happen. So if you were buying a house for four hundred and fifty, excuse me, for $500,000 and you're putting down 10%, 10% of that's $50,000. So you end up borrowing $450,000 and you're coming out of pocket $50,000. All right. So what happens if the appraised value of that property comes in at $475,000? Because a bank or any lender is going to lend on the less of the appraised value or the purchase price. Well, don't be alarmed. You can certainly solution these issues. So in a situation like that, what we would look to do is say, okay, well, we can only use 475000 but we're going to have the buyer or the client now put down 5%. And 5% is $23,750. And then they need to make up the difference between the four seventy five dollars appraised value and the $500,000 purchase price. So that's $25,000. So that's $25,000 plus $23,750, which now means they're going to need $48,750, which is kind of comparable to the original $50,000 that they're looking to put down, right? So great. So everything works out. So what's the difference or what's the catch? The only difference in there is if you go from borrowing 90% of the value to 95% of the value, you just have to be very aware, is there any change to interest rate with doing that? And just as importantly, what's the change to PMI or private mortgage insurance, right? Because there can be a different cost factor associated with it. My experience is if you have really good credit 
it's not going to be a significant difference, but it's certainly something that you want to talk to us about or you want to talk to a loan officer or a mortgage expert about. So that was the first question that I wanted to answer. And moving forward, Nick, you got a ton of different questions from our audience. What do we got? Let's get them going. All right. So this one came in. It's actually not the first time we've seen it. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, we should note that we get back to our clients in a very quick amount of time, very quick response rate. Uh, but to bring it to the show so we could shed light to uh, all of our listeners, one of them was the average question that we get is how much mortgage can I actually afford based right. on you know income and things like that. So, all right. So the question is how much income or how much of a mortgage can I afford? It's a little bit of a loaded question because there's two different things to look at. There's how much mortgage can I qualify for on paper? So how much can I actually pre-approve you for? And then there's also, well, how much money are you comfortable paying per month? And they can be two different questions. So a good rule of thumb when you're looking to purchase a home is you can generally borrow about 45 cents for your housing payment, about 45 cents on the dollar relative to your gross income. So let me give you an example. So if you make $10,000 a month in gross income, your mortgage payment that you could support with principal interest, property taxes, homeowners insurance, and any potential HOA fees, if it's a condo or a townhouse, could not exceed 45% of that, which is $4,500. And I'm using kind of round uh, numbers in it and general guidelines. You can see some variations from time to time, but it's about $4,500. Now, with that being said, you also need to calculate any other debt that shows on your credit report into that debt to income ratio that I just gave you of 45%. So let's just say you have a car payment for $200 a month and you have a credit card payment for $100 a month. Now, when you take the $4,500 plus that $300 in debt, add them together, that's $4,800. You have $10,000 a month in gross income. You divide those numbers, $4,800 divided by $10,000, it gives you another ratio. That's 48%. So the first ratio is what's considered your housing ratio, which was that 45%. The second ratio is what would be considered your back-end ratio, which is 48%. And generally speaking, on a conventional mortgage, you need that ratio under 50%. If it's an FHA mortgage, it could be a little bit more flexible. VA mortgage, it could be more flexible. Now, with all that being said, you know, how much can I afford? Well, that's on paper. You may theoretically be able to, af to afford that, or I could pre-approve you for that. That doesn't mean you want to pay it, right? I mean, if you got $10,000 in gross income coming in every month, you're, are you really comfortable with your mortgage payment being $4,500 a month? Some people may say yes, some people may say no. So it really comes down to your individual risk threshold and how much you want to pay per month. My personal opinion, that's kind of a high number, right? Where I'd be much more comfortable if you got $10,000 a month coming in, seeing your mortgage payment somewhere between $3,000 and $3,500 a month, which gives, you, which gives you that front end debt to income ratio of 30 to 35%. I think that's kind of more of a comfortable spot. Because at the end of the day, we just want to make sure that we're putting people in a position to be comfortable when they go into the home and to not overextend themselves. To me, that's a critical part of the process when I'm helping coach any new home buyer coming to the market. Of course, yeah. I mean, there's always potential for risks or uh, people like entrepreneurs and self-employment where there's a little bit more fluctuation in income and variability. Yeah. You know, another thing I point out too with that, Nick, as well, is that a lot of it has to do with your credit score and do you have what's considered post-closing reserves. 
which means after I close and I put the money down, how much liquid money do I have left? Because all of that can dictate what you can really get approved for. I just use a round number at 45%. But depending on your situation, maybe the number is only 38% you can qualify for. It's, it's going to be relative to each and every individual, depending on your assets and depending on your income, right? And depending on your credit. That's a really important part about it. Because there's a difference between someone with a 780 credit score and a 640 credit score as to what you can actually get pre-approved for. And that transparency is so important for someone who also experienced the home buying journey myself. Yeah. Um, there was definitely a point in time where we're kind of wrapping things up and, you know, there's moving, move, the money moving very quickly. We're at, like we're at closing. It's about to happen. And then the next thing you know, it's like, okay, thank God I had some extra reserve because it could have really set me back or maybe even affected the deal. Sure. Well, and you didn't have a particularly good experience, right, Nick? Because we had spoken about that before. Definitely not the best. You know, I'd like, uh, as, as humble as possible, I, would, I like to say I'm a little, like, financial savvy enough to get me through a lot of financial choices throughout my life so far. Uh, and I don't think homeownership is something that anyone is really educated on unless you're somewhat in the field or you know someone that you're close to that's in the field. And I think it's a big missed opportunity, which is kind of you know, one of the things that we've talked about since the beginning of starting the show and yeah. starting your mortgage process. Yeah, no, no question about it. You know, where's the go-to place you can go to, to to get the answers, right? And not get it spun to you in a sales fashion. Well, if you Google it, there's going to be, the first 10 results are yeah. going to be bought space. Yeah, they're all sponsored ads. Right. And um, people who want the deal, which I respect, right? There's sales behind it. But um, I want that education. I, I myself, I don't need to know, you know, A to Z, but I definitely want to be walked through in a professional manner. It's kind of like buying a car, but obviously way bigger. But you're going to kind of show me, hey, where's the air conditioning? Oh, this is your Bluetooth. And all those little features that really add up because you're using them every day. But now this is my home. This is like one of the biggest things I've I've saved up my whole life for. You know, it's funny. I, I You're right, Nick. And, it's, and I remember buying my first home. My experience wasn't good either. I had a home inspector come into the property. At the time, there's no licensing required or anything like that. And within two weeks of being in the house, my oil burner went. Right. I didn't have any money, right? And then how are you going to get that fixed? And you end up doing it on, on credit. But there was also no educational forum to help lead me down that process. You know, look at some of the things we've done on the show. We've had home inspectors on the show. We've had different people that can try to help and coach through that process. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of factors that you just have to take into account. You know, home ownership isn't necessarily uh, affordable by all means to everyone, but there are ways that you can be more educated to find the correct options that make sense for you. Yeah, hey, and you know what? I'm going to give a shameless plug, which we almost never do on the show. I mean, if you go to yourmortgageprocess.com forward slash mission. I think that's a great site for all of our listeners to go to. So you can really get a good feel for why we put this show into place to begin with. You know, it's really about education. It's about coaching. It's about philanthropy. It's about doing different things to try to help people make more educated choices. And then you can also ask, uh, access there our first-time homebuyer series, which is really broken down, uh, I think, very well to try to help people understand what the process is, as long as being able to view all our stuff on YouTube. Yeah, and that was one of the original discussions how Greg and I first started working together because of that need that I experienced, and it's just such a missing factor. Every real estate agent should just be like, hey, this one link will handhold you. I'll be there as well as, as your agent, but here's a resource. Are you are you a self-learner, or do you want to just watch these quick snippets? They're not long formatted at all. They're maybe two to three minutes, and some are even shorter. Right. Yeah. All right, good. Nick, question number two. What all do right. we got? This is actually perfect for our listeners. Oh, I'm ready to go. So this is to us as the, uh, as the mortgage agency, but they're asking, what should I consider when choosing an agent, a real estate agent? 
Oh, that's a great question. So when you're looking to choose a real estate agent, I think the best way to start that process is to talk to friends and family that have used a real estate agent in the past and see what their experience was like. I mean, I think most with any relationship that you're getting into, and look, I must face it, if you're going to go buy a house or list a house for sale, I mean, that's a very personal process. So the person that's responsible for that big of a transaction, you have to have a really high trust relationship and it's got to be someone that you like and someone you can communicate with. So I think the first place I would always go is a referral. Because if you get a referral that's sent over to you of someone or several people that have a great experience, I think that's the best way to start. I think that's fair. Yeah. You know, I would also say, you know, over the course of time, you know, we're also building something out on our website, yourmortgageprocess.com, that's going to try to help with that process as well. People that we've had great experiences with from a real estate agent standpoint, so people can have a pool of people that they can look at as well. Yeah, the preferred network, I think, is going to be great for uh, not only our listeners, uh, but uh, potential future clients. Or Definitely. Clients. But number one's referral. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Because you don't know what you're getting outside of that. I mean, you certainly want to Google them as well. You know, see what type of references, see if there's anything posted posted out there good. See how many transactions they do, how knowledgeable are, are they in the marketplace? Because you got to know that area cold. And I'll give you a great example. Like you're probably not going to want to work with a real estate agent that's 50 miles outside of where you're looking to buy or where you're looking to list a property. And it's not a bad thing. That agent can be fantastic in the market that they're in, but they don't know the market. And knowing the market, I think that's, I think real estate agents really get undervalued in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways they get commoditized. And I say the same thing on the mortgage side as well. You get commoditized, but at the end of the day, especially in markets that get tighter, dealing with an experienced professional that knows how to negotiate and that knows the marketplace, knows the other real estate agents that are involved in the transaction, knows the mortgage person, knows the, the title company. I just think it's critical for a seamless process and it helps increase your probability of getting that home that you're looking to buy or being able to sell that home for a premium price. I think that's one of the greatest things that your mortgage process offers is you're multifaceted. So just because Greg doesn't do home inspections doesn't mean he can't make sure you have some of the best home inspections that are available. Definitely. Definitely. Great. All right. Great question. Cool. All right. What's next? Yeah. The next one on the list was, uh, Oh, you memorized that. I did actually. <laughs> uh, so the next one, we haven't really actually talked about this. So this is like yeah. new territory, which I'm sure we'll discover hey. eventually. And just so everyone knows, I don't know what the questions are. Yeah. This is not, uh, this is not premeditated. Right. So you give me a couple <laughs> meatballs. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this one was, uh, what kind of, um, opportunities or obstacles might I face when looking into a foreclosed pro uh, project or purchase? Uh, great question. So if the property is truly foreclosed on, the biggest issue that I see is the condition of the property, right? So if I'm going to buy the property and I need a mortgage for it, if there's any significant issues with the property, you may not be able to do a regular conventional mortgage, FHA mortgage, VA mortgage, based on the condition of the property. But there are alternative solutions to that. And those alternative solutions would be some type of a renovation loan where you can purchase the home and at the same time you can finance what the cost of repairs would be. Now, it's a little bit longer of a process, takes longer to get down because, get done because you have builders involved in it, you need quotes and different things, but there is a solution for that. 
A couple other things with a foreclosed property is you have to make sure the water's on. You can't buy a house if the water's not on, right? Unless you do it as a renovation. Like, let's assume the condition is good. But when we send an appraiser out to the property, the water's got to be running. Heat's got to be running. Like, thing, electricity has to be on for a proper inspection to be done on the property. Interesting. That's just something to keep in mind. Where that can really be an issue is in the middle of the winter. So now I'm in the middle of the winter. A property's been winterized. Well, you got to turn the water on, right? You have to be able to make sure that everything's functional in the property for a conventional or FHA type of transaction. Renovation loan, different guidelines, different rules, different standards is what you can do as to what you can do. And it's much more flexible when buying a foreclosure. The other thing that you want to keep in mind is there's a process associated with that. So my experience with a foreclosure just takes a longer period of time because now you have a bank involved in the decision making. Now that property is going to be listed for sale and it's probably going to be listed for sale through a real estate agent. But any offer that comes in on that property, the indecision as to whether or not they're going to accept the offer is the bank. Right. And banks are notoriously not that fast. Right. You know, when I go back to 2010, let's say, we really had a slew of foreclosures coming in the marketplace. Short sales or foreclosures, I mean, they took a long time to get approval from the bank because there's such a high volume of them. When we look at where the market's at right now, there's not that high of a volume of foreclosures or short sales, but it's still a process associated with the bank. The other thing I would say is once the bank approves, they want to close. So it may take two weeks, three weeks for the bank to get back to us. But as soon as they say, hey, we're going to accept your offer, they're like, they want to close in a week. So just being prepared and staying ahead of the curve on everything. They usually buy a little bit more time, but at the end of the day, they have books and things that they have to do from an accounting standpoint where it can be time sensitive. Excellent job, Greg. I know. I've been practicing that. That that was not an easy one. (laughs) We never talked about that. So definitely something interesting to talk about. Uh, I have a lob for you, I think. I'm going to stretch it out a little bit. I'm going to adjust it. But they're uh, asking how long uh, a closing is. Yeah. But now between the past two years to today, we've seen drastic timeframes that are different. So let's talk about what the average is maybe today and maybe some of the, to make it more fun, you can talk about the quickest and the longest. Yeah, so when you look at closing timeframe, the first part about closing timeframe is what's the negotiation between the buyer and the seller as to when do they wanna close. Right. Right, because everyone's gotta be in agreement. You can, I was just talking to someone yesterday that were trying to close by, in, in like 15 days, right? Kind of short time frame, but you can certainly do it in that time frame. But my first question is, is the seller agreeable? Because if they're not agreeable to it, they have to get their stuff out of the property and everything like that. There's no sense of shooting for that particular date. So that's the first part of it. And people have to be on the same page. As far as the process is concerned, on the quick end, you can close a transaction in about 15 days, but it's still threading the needle a little bit. Uh, and the reason for that is there are certain things that need to get done, like the appraisal to the property, which can take a little bit longer. But you can get it done that fast. And on the longer end of it, it depends on the, the transaction type. So we were just talking about renovation loans a few minutes ago. That loan's not going to close in 15 days. That may be something that has more of a 45-day window just because now you have builders involved and you have quotes involved. And it's just a more complicated process that has more due diligence from a paperwork standpoint. Uh, but good rule of thumb, you can close it in 15 days. Compliance-wise, you can even do it a little bit faster than that. 
And on the long end, what we see in the market right now is probably about 45 to 60 days. You know, another part of that question is what is the market support right now? Because in a normal market with a healthy balance of supply and demand, it's probably, you know, people need 45 to 60 days to put everything together. But we've seen a lot of people wanting to close very quickly. I need to close within 30 days, and it can be part of the negotiation to having their offer accepted. Right. So the inventory in this particular market is moving very, very quickly. So you have to get the transaction done very quickly. Do you so, feel God, you first? No, I was going to say, so you got to talk to someone who knows what they're doing that can facilitate the process. Right. I was So along those lines, I was going to ask, do you feel like those days of like, I definitely want to close in this house, but the closet is a little crooked, so I want you to get that fixed before we close. Are those like long gone, or do you feel like that maybe could come back depending on... Supply? It will definitely come back, but because it's such a demand-heavy market right now with limited supply, you're not seeing the, the nitpicky... It's just hard to get what you want right now. Yeah, yeah, you're just not getting that nitpicky back and forth. I mean, for the most part, what we've seen is when someone has an inspection done to the home, and not the appraisal, but an actual home inspector that goes out there, it's usually for structural or major issues, foundation issues or roof issue. Is there something that's significant? Where the smaller things, to your point, like, I don't like the closet door, the way it looks, that stuff's really not being negotiated out right now, just based on the imbalance between supply and demand. In a normal market... Or in a market where you have six months of supply versus now we have about two months of supply, well, that's different. Now it's more balanced. Now it becomes more of a healthy negotiation between buyer and seller. Okay. Fair. That was my own question, by the way. Okay. That's a good one. <laughs> so the next one. <laughs> Did you submit that via email? I'm going to send it to myself. I would hope so. Got it. Right to the team. Uh, so the next one is, how does existing homeownership affect my eligibility for another home? So it depends. So it depends on what that second property is going to be. Is it going to be in a vacation home? Is it going to be an investment property? So if you're not going to sell your existing home and you're looking to purchase another home, you can't use any type of first-time homebuyer credits because it's not a primary residence and you're not a first-time homebuyer. And to define that, a first-time homebuyer is someone that has not owned a property within three years. If it's a vacation home, from, a, from an income qualification standpoint, you have to make enough money to be able to support principal interest, taxes, insurance, and any potential HOA fees on your current home and the house that you're looking to purchase. So you got to make enough money to support all that. On an investment property, it's a little bit different. So you don't have to fully support the cost of the investment property. You can use a portion of the rental income to try to offset that payment. So in that scenario... Purchasing the investment property may be easier to qualify for, you know, operating the presumption, great credit, great assets, all of that, than the second home is just from an income qualification standpoint. Can you flip it? Can I say I'm moving into a new home and the existing home will be a rental? Can that work that way? So it's a great question. So you can do that. So you can rent out your primary residence if you've been in it for a year, and then you can buy another primary. But it's also got to make sense. So if you're... Selling a property that is, or excuse me, if you're going to rent your existing home and you're buying a house that's three miles away, that's a comparable type of home, you probably, you're going to have a hard time doing that because it doesn't make sense. But if you own a condo and you want to rent that and you're going to then upgrade to a single family home, and these upgrade loosely, but you're moving to a single family home, well, that makes sense. And that makes sense why it would be your new primary residence. 
Now, can you use the rental income from the house that you're renting to help qualify to try and offset that mortgage payment? It depends. So on a conventional mortgage, you can use a portion of that projected rental income. On an FHA mortgage, if you have an FHA mortgage or you're trying to get an FHA mortgage, that departing residence would have to be 100 miles away from the new home. Oh, wow. So it's a little bit more complicated. It depends on the property types, or excuse me, it depends on the mortgage type. And by 100 miles, are they actually like on a map? And they're like, you got to get that map out. Really? Let's go. That's got to be 100. Again, everything just has to be common sense and make sense. So someone can't just go buy another property, say they're going to live there, when the intention is to say rent it. Right. That's why it's got to just make common sense. So I have one that I'd like to close on. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about this while you're talking about it and you're introducing this concept to me. So what if... What if I'm like a snowbird or like I'm a snowbird in training and I'm like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to do six months in Jersey and six months in Florida. So I'm actually going to have like dual residency. Is there any like options like that? Or does that not really exist? It's a good question. We have to declare one as your primary. Interesting. And it's, and again, it's all got to make sense. I'll give you a great example. Like someone could tell me I'm moving to Florida. They work a job here in New Jersey and I'm moving to Florida and I don't want to sell my existing property. and I'm going to go live in Florida. Okay. What are you going to do for work? Are you transferring within your existing company or are you planning on quitting your job and trying to find a job down there? Because that matters because you can't quit your job. If you're using the existing income to qualify you to purchase the other home, it's going to be a challenge. But if you can work from anywhere and you're relocating within that, that uh, same company or you're getting a new job down in the area that you're moving to, you know, all those things come into play with making the determination as to what we would consider your primary home. Now, I, I couldn't let this go now, so because yeah. now I'm, I'm threading this. So now I'm moving, and the income is generally the same, but maybe there's some other tax incentives, like you know, no state income tax in like Florida, for example. Yeah. So my income could be slightly more now. Can that also impact, or we're kind of basing it off what I'm existing? Well, we're still qualifying based on gross income. So from a W-2 standpoint, it's gross income. So no matter what the, the taxes are like, you're qualifying on gross income. So I know Florida has no state taxes, but it doesn't increase what your W-2 income is, you know, unless you're actually getting a raise, Got right? Uh, for someone like yourself who's self-employed that can do your job from anywhere, well, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. You're going to Florida, you're being closer to friends and family down in that area. It could make perfect sense as to why you'd be relocating there. Okay. Yeah, I thought this was fun. This was pretty cool. I mean, we nailed a couple of good questions. Definitely. Uh, did you feel any of them were tough? No. What a pro. all right so this one loosely asked this directly okay what's the difference between fixed and adjusted and that's probably a loaded question too i assume yeah but i guess if you want to expand all right i got a real technical answer for this so what's the difference between a fixed rate and an adjustable rate are you ready a fixed rate means it's fixed and it'll never change and an adjustable rate means that it could change and it's not fixed. Now, that's my sarcastic way, sarcastic way of answering it, but let me give it to you in more detail. All right, so if you got a fixed interest rate, you obviously know your rate's never going to change. And as a result of that, you know that your principal and interest payment's never going to change because everything's amortized over that, say, 30-year time frame. It's never going to change. When you have an adjustable rate mortgage, the key to understand with that type of a loan is you're generally going to be fixed for a certain period of time, say a seven-year adjustable rate. That means that you're fixed for seven years 
at the beginning of the eighth year, your interest rate can adjust. And depending on the type of adjustable rate program that you went into, it could go up, it could go down. There could be different caps on how much it could go up in the first adjustment period, the frequency of the adjustment periods, and the overall life of the loan. I'll give you an example. Like, let's say it's a seven-year adjustable rate, and in the first adjustment period, it can go only go up as much as 1% per year and 5% over the life of the loan. So that would mean that in year one, let's just say the interest rate is 6%. 6% beginning of year eight rates went up and now it's at 7%. They keep going up 8% the next year, 9% the next year, but there's eventually a cap on that, a 5% cap on that. So if we started at 6%, worst case scenario at the end of year 12, your interest rate could go up to 12%, right? Started at say, or excuse me, 11%. 11%. You have 6% add 5% to it. It's just an example because there's different types of adjustable rate mortgages. There's some adjustable rate mortgages where that entire amount of the cap could be what adjusts in the first adjustment period. So again, in our example, if your cap's 5% and that first adjustment period is the amount of your cap, which is 5%, beginning of year eight, you literally go from 6% to 11%. Wow. The whole key with adjustable rate mortgages can be the right product for the right person. But you have got to make sure that you're talking to someone that really knows the product from a loan officer standpoint and that's educating you on the pros and the cons that are associated with the program. And this is relative to the interest rate of the market or how much I'm actually paying. Like, for example, the practice of someone overpaying slightly every month, is that affected at all too? Or it's kind of like, hey, if it's adjusting or it's a, you know, a variable, it's going to be that no matter what. Well, yeah, it would just adjust at the end of that adjustment period. And it's tied to an index. Yeah. And different adjustable products have different index, indexes. And then there's a margin on top of that. So if that index goes up or down, that would dictate whether or not the rate's going to go up or down come the adjustment period. Again, great product for the right person, terrible product for the wrong person. Because who wants to be in that worst case scenario if that's not where you want to be. Like if you knew you were going to be in a house for three years, it could be the right product for you. If you're very savvy and you know that you're going to buy down the principal over the course of time and just capitalize on that lower interest rate and understanding what happens come potentially happens come year eight could be the right product for you. Uh, along those same lines is there's products that are called interest only products, which essentially mean that the minimum payment on the mortgage is just the interest that's due on it. So let's play that out for a second. So it's a million dollar loan and your monthly payment is only the interest that's due on the loan. So it's a minimum payment that you're making out. So unless you're making overpayments to principal, that principal balance never reduces. So you could be five years down the road and still owe a million dollars on the property if you've never made overpayments to principal. But it could be a great product for someone. So in that situation, I don't know if it's the, the best thing unless you're really financially savvy and you have a long-term plan. You know, sometimes it can be beneficial for people because your monthly payment, you're only paying interest on your outstanding balance. So say you're someone that is in a bonus-oriented business and say you get a $200,000 bonus at the end of every year. Well, at the end of that, you want you to keep your payments down during the year and you're gonna take that 200,000 at the end of the year and you're gonna put it towards your mortgage. So now you're going from a million dollars to 800,000. That next month, your payment goes down because you're only paying interest on the 800,000, not on the million. It comes down to discipline, I guess. If discipline, 
savvy, understanding the product and just, you know, in understanding what the long and short term objectives are. You got to have the education on it. You just got to know what's going on. Greg. Yes. This one's the hot button. You ready for oh, it? Oh, I'm so ready. Should I lock? <laughs> <laughs> That's a million dollar question. So let me explain uh, how interest rate locks work. So interest rate locks are time sensitive. So if you're locking an interest rate in, the shorter the period of time you lock an interest rate in, the potential better the interest rate, right? So you log in for 15 days, you lock in for 30. I've seen 37-day locks, 45-day locks. So you can see all sorts of different creative locks that are out there. When answering the question, because I get it all the time, Greg, should I lock the interest rate in? And that's a question I would never steer somebody one way or the other because you can't, because it's not my mortgage. All you can do is educate as to what the pros and the cons are associated with it. You can talk about current market conditions and what's going on in the market. Now, I educate uh, my clients in reference to some of the things that drive mortgage interest rates, things like the 10-year treasury bond yield. When that yield's going up, long-term interest rates are generally going up. Mortgage-backed securities market can impact where the interest rates are going. Inflation reports come out. Inflation's a hot button right now. Depending on how that inflation report reads, that can impact the market. It can impact the bond market. So there's a lot of different factors that go into it, and a lot of different people have different risk tolerances. This is exactly what I say to people. It depends on your risk tolerance and what you want to do. There's no right and there's no wrong answer. Just go through the education, what's going on in the marketplace, and what are you comfortable with? And because I've dealt with people that they, they're not risk adverse, right? Ah, let's ride it out. Let's ride it out. Keep me posted. I'll keep them posted every day as to what's going on in the marketplace. And there's other people that the pain of them not locking in and rates going up, and when they're making a payment for $25 more a month in interest because they didn't, it would drive them crazy every month. Like you, Nick. That's, that's how, <laughs> It would that's drive me. you insane because they're just risk adverse, and it's just they need to do what they're comfortable with. You'll see me at the $10 tables. That's the only place. <laughs> we're not going to the, I'm not at the 50 minutes. I can tell you, I'm like that too. You know, I like to know what I'm buying when I'm buying it. And that doesn't mean that I'm right and I don't have any special you know, superpowers to know what interest rates are going to do. I just, I want, I want to know what I'm buying. Right. And other people just like to roll the dice. So to answer your question is it's a personal preference that should be made relative to the education that they've received in relative to what their risk threshold is. Very similar to when you're investing your money, you know, do you want to be in something conservative or do you want to be in something aggressive, knowing that an aggressive investment can yield a higher rate of return, but you can also take bigger losses. Conservative investment, lower rate of return, lower losses. So it's very similar. Awesome. Great. All right, All right, Nick, you're just like full of fantastic questions today. And thank you to the audience for sending these over to us. All right, we're going to wrap up with one more question. And I know you said it was the final question before, but we kept leading it forward. All right, give me one more question. This will be the last one for the day. I think we just got very excited about this episode. So really like to kind of just rolled with it. I think we were, we were actually supposed to be done like three questions ago. Uh -huh. but, uh, we'll keep rocking. Well, this is why we're going to go with a live stream in the future. Yeah. So people can just ask the questions directly to me and we can just communicate on a, on a live stream all at the same time. And Greg loves, I mean, he loves what he does. So he'll rap about this all day. He'll answer your questions. He'll guide you through it. I mean, I myself, some of these questions I'm generating on my own are just because I'm I'm interested enough. And I'm sure there's people who are 
in the mix of it and maybe they might not be with the best team and Greg is a great resource there. So yeah. don't be afraid to reach out. Yeah, listen, I mean, anything I can do to try to help educate people and lead them down the right path. You know, I obviously do mortgages for a living, right? That's what I've done for 25 years. But at the end of the day, my biggest concern is making sure that that individual buyer, a person looking to purchase a home or that client is getting the best service, the best process and the best education coupled with a fantastic interest rate. That's what I care about. Because I have situations where people will call me and they'll call me a week before they have to close on the property. Hey, Greg, can you review this with me? What do you think? What can I do? And I give them my honest opinion on everything. But I also, at the end of the conversation, when they say, can you take over the transaction? I tell them no. You know, I mean, you're closing in a week. Everything's done. Your commitment's issued. You don't want to put that person into a vulnerable spot, right? So it's never about the money. It's about the individual that's trying to get the transaction done. I'm going to give you a, actually a really good example of that. And I'm going to zoom off on a tangent. So I was referred over to this gentleman that was relocating from Canada to New Jersey. And he worked for a bank up in Canada. And he was working with a mortgage company. And they were actually very, very big mortgage company. Uh, big on the national scale. And he had called me because he was having a problem with the gift funds that he was using to purchase the home. And the conversation I had with him, and I think at the time it was maybe four days outside of closing, right? And at the time, I, I, he asked me if I'd take it over. I said, no, I'm not going to take it over. What I'm going to do is I'm going to educate you as to what you need to gather to bring back to the company to get them to finish the transaction. And, you know, I gave him the advice as how do we want it, what he needed to do. And when he sent everything in, the mortgage company still said they weren't going to do it. I said, well, it's not possible. Here's the guy, Fannie Mae guidelines. Here's everything. They got to do it. And he, at that point in time in our conversation, what the rep from that other company said is we have what's called an overlay to Fannie Mae guidelines. Well, we're not going to accept it. A lot of other companies should have accepted it, but they had some own, their own internal guidelines that wouldn't allow them to complete the transaction. They decided they want to do the transaction. So poor guy was turned down two or three days prior to closing. Right. And, you know, my point with that is that, you know, I was certainly going to help him try to come to closure on what he was trying to do. But then, of course, as soon as they said they weren't going to do it, I took it over. We closed them in 11 days, which is great. I felt great for him. Poor guy. Moving down, relocating in the car with his family, coming from Canada down to New Jersey. And uh, we got him cleared to close. We closed him on time. But That's awesome. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, di I digressed. No, that's I mean... That the the above and beyond, right? The call to yeah. uh, above and beyond is it separates people. And the hard part is, is a lot of people who are already in the process don't know it until it might be too late. Mm -hmm. You know, could do I wish I would, you know, I knew you before? Yeah, you know, it would have been a much better experience. I feel like I would have a much healthier expectation of how the home buying process is than, than I did at the time. Yeah. And it's again, you know, I'm a shamelessly plug our show and everything that we do and social media and on YouTube and on Spotify and Apple, you know, we do this. Look guys. I mean, at the end of the day, this shit, Nick ain't free. <laughs> I mean, putting this whole thing together, it's not free, but it's critical. I think for people that are looking to buy and sell a home to become better educated 
And in addition to that, it's critical for industry experts to also understand what's going on in the marketplace, you know, different things that you may or may not know. It serves as an educational resource. And that's critical. That's passionate for, for Nick and myself, known each other for a long period of time. That's why we put it together to begin with. 100%. So, but you should really go to, and I'm going to plug it one more time, yourmortgageprocess.com forward slash mission. And that's going to give every link that you need to see. And then in addition to that, you're going to get a good, really good feel as to why we put this show together. Now with that, we don't have any more questions today, right, Nick? We had the one. Which one? Did I not we answer it? One. Yeah, we had the one. Oh, go. There's probably an episode that we we briefly talked about it. Okay. Which is probably a great episode maybe in its own because there's a lot of financial stuff. Yeah. Um, but buying points. Ooh, buying points. Okay. So what's a point? You hear the term thrown around in the mortgage industry. All a point is, it's a percentage of the amount of money that you're borrowing. So as an example, if you pay one point, say you're buying out your mortgage amounts $400,000. You pay one point, that's 1% of $400,000. So that's $4,000 that's due at the closing. It's considered prepaid interest. Well, what's that do for you? What that does is it reduces your interest rate. Now, it doesn't reduce your interest rate by 1%. In a normal market, that one point is generally going to reduce your interest rate by one quarter of 1%. Now, in the current market that we're in where it's more volatile, we're actually seeing where it's reducing an interest rate by as much as a half a percent. Oh, wow. Which is unusual. Yeah. It's almost like the market's encouraging people to pay a point to get that interest rate down lower. So that's all it is. Prepaid interest reduces your interest rate. But the critical part about it and what people need to understand is what's my long and short-term plan and what's my break even on the money, right? So if you're going to pay, in our example, $4,000, and let's just say for easy numbers, let's say the difference in payments is $100 a month. How long does it take you to recuperate the $4,000 that you paid at closing at $100 a month? It takes you 40 months, right? So it takes you about three and a half years to get there. So that would tell me that if you plan on staying in the house and not refinancing the mortgage or anything like that over the course of the next three and a half years, it, it would make sense to do that. In today's market, when I look at you know paying points, it's a little bit of a challenge because we don't know where the market's going. So if you pay a point now, well, if interest rates drop next year and they drop to 5%, as an example, it may make sense for you to refinance and you're never going to recuperate that, that cost you paid at closing. Now, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing to do, but you just need to understand the pros and the cons associated with it and what those break-even numbers look like. And is there a max? Like how many points can I buy? That's a great question. So you can, you can buy several points to drive the interest rate down, but there's also a point of diminishing returns. So if you look at that, if that first point is dropping your interest rate, let's just say three-eighths of a percent today, that second point may only drop you an additional quarter percent to interest rate. That third point may only drop you an eighth of a percent to interest rate. So there's sort of a, there's that point of diminishing returns where it just doesn't make sense to keep paying additional points. One point could be an, be an option for someone just based on the way the market sits today, and, but you know, you gotta, you just got to understand all your different options. Multiple points, 
my opinion right now, I'm not a big fan of it. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it's not like you're driving the interest rate down by paying multiple points to a point where you'd never refinance that mortgage. Right. That's so, all I get. It. Yeah. Fair enough. That's, that's the skinny. That's There's plenty more, but I figured it's probably a perfect time to wrap. All right. We, we tried to wrap almost a couple of times, but again, we were, uh, you're on a roll. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to wrap it. So uh, these questions were great. I want to thank everybody in the audience that emailed these questions over to us. Like I said earlier in the broadcast, we are going to be going to live phone calls that can come in as well. And also we encourage you to email or to text us over a question that we can answer for you on a future show. So if you wanted to email us, you can email it directly to me, greg at yourmortgageprocess.com, or you could text it, and you could text it to area code 385-519-HOME, H-O-M-E. So that's 385-519-4663, and that's the word home. So please send the questions out there. I love answering them. Like I said, we're also going to be setting up a, a live stream to get a really good Q&A going with people in real time. Uh, I want to thank Nick. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Awesome. Has anyone podcast. ever seen you seen you before? I wonder if I look back at the content, there might be a photo or two. Maybe. maybe. Oh, now you get now you know exactly who I'm talking to That's when I'm it. talking to Nick. So if you need anything, guys, please reach out to us. Greg at yourmortgageprocess.com. Phone number is 385-519-HOME. Nick, thanks for taking the time to be on the show today. You bet. Hey, guys, listen, I appreciate you. Look forward to catching up with you next week. Greg Wareham, Your Mortgage Process. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham, produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift, and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to catching up with you next week.